Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Today's show is also sponsored by SoFi. SoFi offers student loan refinancing that saves members on average $19,000. They also partner with companies to help pay down employee student debt. See how SoFi can help you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me better as the person in charge of trending algorithms at Facebook, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Daphne Kohler, the president and co-founder of the online education platform Coursera. She's also been a professor at Stanford University's Engineering School, where she specialized in machine learning, artificial intelligence, and computational biology. Daphne Kohler, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kara. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. This is a topic I'm very, very interested in. And, and, you know, there's been a lot written about educational platforms and where they're going. And and there's plenty of competitors in the space and a lot of both like Curious.com, which are more for hobbyists and and more for real learning, although everything's real learning, I guess. Um, Talk a little bit about the beginnings of this and how you decided to do this and why. When I started this, I'd been a Stanford professor for about 18 years, and in parallel to all the research that you mentioned, I'd always been passionate about education and providing access to education to people. I had constructed a bunch of ideas at Stanford that led primarily around the flipped classroom model to Mm -hmm. creating some really great courses to be made available to Stanford students, and at some point it became clear that if we were doing that, we might as well make those courses available to people everywhere around the world for free. And so we tried that in September of 2011, Mm -hmm. took three courses, graduate courses in computer science, and made them available to everyone. We really had no idea what would happen. There was minimal marketing, just one New York Times article that went viral. Mm -hmm. But within a matter of weeks, each of those courses had an enrollment of 100,000 people or more. This has been thought of for a long time, like that you could do this. It was conceptual, that that you wouldn't need universities or that people could do these online. And there's been lots of examples of that. What made it different around this time? Because all of a sudden there were many, many like this that were trying it. I think one of the things that happened was, first of all, technology got better, um, whether it's bandwidth as well as the delivery mechanisms, but also the fact that uh, top universities were getting into this and really making that content available, I think, really shifted the landscape. And do you imagine it's because the advances in technology, when you're thinking about the advances, I mean, computers have always been available, we've had connections and everything else, but people became comfortable with this idea that they didn't have to be in a class to take a class. I think there was definitely a societal shift as well. The Facebook generation that is used to communicating with each other digitally, people who are on YouTube and used to consuming content digitally, was a big societal shift that enabled this. And what do you, so you were here at Stanford, and how did it move into a company? You were going to offer it at Stanford, which a lot of universities, MIT was doing it, mm-hmm. all kinds of universities were moving into this idea. That's right. Um, and they were usually a computer course, typically a computer mm-hmm. course or something like that. It wasn't art history. It was mm-hmm. some sort of computer course. MIT, it was the... Circuits. That's right. Um, how did it then evolve into this? 
So I think we realized relatively quickly that while we could take Stanford and put it online, there were many universities that had tremendous content to offer to the world. Mm -hmm. And we knew if we really wanted to make an impact to the tune of 100,000 people benefiting from this, we needed to get content from many of the top universities and make it available so you can create a really rich catalog that would span the range of disciplines. Mm -hmm. So here you are at Stanford, you're a professor. What did you do next? So we went and we talked to people um, and said, how do we really make this big? And several people said, if you want to make it big, you have to spin this out of Stanford. You can't do it in the context of a single institution. And so basically at the end of 2011, we spun this out of Stanford and started an independent company, Coursera. Which includes Stanford courses. It includes Stanford courses and now about 140 other institutions. Now, Stanford and MIT were also doing their own efforts at this, which they were also bringing courses online. So we basically took the Stanford effort and put it out there, and then they decided that they also wanted to try a variety of different things, including their own homegrown platform. Right. But the Stanford courses were part of our founding. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the challenges, the technological challenges of doing this at the beginning, and then how they've changed and how you've dealt with them. I think there were technological challenges, but I think even more fundamental were the, um, what you might call sociological challenges, which mm-hmm. is going to top universities and convincing them to take the thing that lies at the heart of who they are, their content, their faculty, their brand, mm-hmm. and putting it out there for anyone around the world to take for free, not for a tuition of $50,000. Right. And what was your argument to them? I think the argument was that the digital revolution is coming. It's come to pretty Came. much every it's other sector. Well, it's arrived at every other sector, and higher ed was one of the last uh, ones to remain untouched. And we said, this is coming. It's coming with or without your participation. Do you want to be the ones leading this revolution, or do you want to be disrupted from the outside? Probably with players who are not as driven by quality, by student outcomes, as you would be. And who do you prefer to be disrupted by? By ourselves or by these maybe less savory players? Mm -hmm. And the reaction? Because on one point, what do you offer them? I mean, it's like sort of Facebook coming to you and saying, put your publishing stuff on Facebook and then there's no money to be made. But hey, go ahead. It makes Facebook better, but not necessarily your business. Well, initially, we didn't have much to offer them because we couldn't tell them that they would make money. We didn't even know how we would make money. There was a a list at the end of the agreement that we had with them saying, here's 12 random ideas that we have on how this might make money. And we had no (laughs) idea which of those would work. Um, I think it was really about... What was one of them? Well, one of them was the one that we really ended up with. No, not tuition. Mm -hmm. uh, Paying for certification, for credentialing, which Mm -hmm. is where our biggest revenue stream is coming from right now. Mm -hmm. But there were a bunch of others, some of which we even tried and didn't work. Like, for instance, um, going to a employers and saying, do you want to potentially hire from our pool of students who complete, with their permission, of course. Mm -hmm. And that didn't turn out for various reasons to work out as well. Mm -hmm. So we had a list of 12, and um, and this was one of them, Mm -hmm. the certificates. And when people wanted to do this, what was the reason colleges wanted to do this? So first of all, I think this really was a matter of if we're going to be disrupted, we'd rather it were us Mm -hmm. and sort of the the wish to be forward thinking and leading a revolution rather than trailing behind Mm -hmm. was one of the reasons. And one of the reasons for not doing it, what would they tell you? Give me an example. I I think there was a legitimate fear, which turned out to be unfounded, that we would put universities out of business. Mm -hmm. And in fact, everything that we've seen 
goes the opposite direction. Universities that engage in this actually gain more attention, more visibility worldwide. They have a larger intake of potential applicants. So mm -hmm. it's actually beneficial to them. And I think some of them did see that, and it was one of the reasons for engaging. So giving in people a taste of these universities exactly. and what they had versus exactly. little marketing and, yeah. and how they do things. Absolutely. But do you imagine a day when you don't need universities? I think universities are Is that here. what your goal is? That no, that is absolutely not our goal. Uh, universities are our partners, and we think they play a fundamental role in society. Mm -hmm. They also play a fundamental role in our business model in that they are the creators of this content. We do not create the content. Mm -hmm. Someone has to nurture those faculty and make them the kinds of scholars that create the amazing content that we have. And we also think that for a lot of students, the face-to-face -face residential experience and that deep interaction with faculty is a fundamental part of growing up. Mm -hmm. And that will continue. I think that will continue. Really? I Many don't people think don't. It, Many people don't. I don't know that it will continue in the same form and at the same scale. I think that we're already starting to see a lot of people who prefer an online experience mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it suits better with their lifestyle. Well, it's a little bit like shopping, though. It, you know, I didn't used to shop online as much as I would, but now I do it all the time. Like, I don't think I... I haven't been in a store in a long time. That's true, but you can also look at it the other way. The other example is music, digital mm -hmm. music, where you can buy any song that you want today on iTunes for 99 cents, and yet face-to-face -face concerts, yeah, if anything, are growing. Right. And I think that when you talk about a learning experience, that close connection with the instructor is much deeper than you get with a singer on the stage. And so I think, if anything, that will increase the attraction of face-to-face -face universities. So what has worked so far online for you, for Coursera? What kind of topics have worked? Uh, we uh, pretty much most topics have mm -hmm. been successful on Coursera. We have courses in everything from what you would expect, which are the science or engineering, computer science, all the way to courses in the creatives. Like uh, we have a specialization, a series from the Berkeley College of Music called Modern Musician, which is how to create, compose, and produce your own song, mm -hmm. which is really cool that you could do that online. But science has been more popular, the computer sciences. No, no? I think we started with computer science, sure. but really now the humanities and the creatives are a good 30, 40% of the platform. We have science, we have humanities. There is a good range What's of topics. What's your favorite course? I'm just curious if you... I try not to answer that question <laughs> because as soon as I do, other people will say, what do you mean my course is not your favorite uh -huh. course? As the Which, founder, right, I have a talk special... Talk a little bit about what's good. What works online in these courses? What becomes popular? What do they have to do to make it interesting for people to use these? Ultimately, the courses that succeed the most are the ones that have really great teachers, ones mm -hmm. that are really charismatic, ones that are really passionate about their disciplines. And how does that manifest itself? I mean, first of all, it manifests in just the style of the teaching, mm -hmm. but it also manifests in really being thoughtful about pedagogy. So people would just come in and, you know, they talk a little bit and there's a few multiple choice quizzes. Those are fine and, and people enjoy them. But ones that really try and provide you with deep, substantive, transformative learning outcomes, those are the ones that really make a difference. Is that a different experience online versus being there? Every experience is different, mm -hmm. and I think there's different comparison points. When you say being there, are you talking about being there in a 12-person seminar room, or are mm -hmm. you talking about being in a 250-person right. auditorium? Yeah, but what I'm curious is what works online what versus something else, because it's a very different experience versus being there. Is it the way they watch it? Is it how they watch it? Because I want to talk later about VR and how, mm -hmm. we, how that would look, You know, because you could see feeling like you're actually in the classroom. 
So I think what we see in these online courses is actually that it's more like almost an, a one-to-one -one interaction with the instructor. The ones that work best is the ones where it's like you and me sitting across from each other. Mm -hmm. And it feels like we're actually having a conversation and this person on the other side is explaining something to you. And I think that makes a very big difference. Mm -hmm. And we've had instructors who've told us that They've been in airports and students would come up and hug them ah. as if they'd been in this kind of uh, mm -hmm. extended conversation face to face because they feel like they know you. Right. Absolutely. We are talking to Daphne Kohler, who's the head of Coursera, which is an online learning platform. When we get back, we're going to talk about where learning is going online and then kind of where it's really going in the future and whether we do need schools and universities anymore. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. Daphne, what books should I listen to next? I always ask my guests. Well, one of my favorite books that I'd read recently mm -hmm. is Switch by the Heath Brothers, ah. uh, Dan and Chip Heath. Mm -hmm. And that's a book about creating behavior change where change is hard. Uh -huh. And that's something that is actually at the heart of what we do. Right. Because and what did you like about it? I like that it gave you really clear recipes on how to take something that is really hard for people to do. For instance, learning online is really mm -hmm. hard for people. Mm -hmm. How do you get them to take the steps that are necessary mm -hmm. to do something that's really good for them that they really want to do, but how do you get that behavior to happen? Switch. Okay, all right then. I don't think people change, but okay, I'll try it. <laughs> uh, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. Today's show is also brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is a new kind of finance company that's helping members get out of student debt faster. Refinancing student loans with SoFi saves members on average $19,000. I have the COO of SoFi, Joanne Bradford, here. How do you save us $19,000 and what are you going to spend it on, Joanne? Well, the average student leaves college with $35,000 in debt. Uh -huh. If you get an advanced degree, you have over $100,000 in debt mm -hmm. at a high interest rate. Most people actually don't even think about it. Okay. And all these employees at all these tech companies, mm -hmm. media companies, law firms, consulting firms have a ton of student loan debt. So they should refi just like you do your mortgage. Mm -hmm. You can do that at SoFi as well mm -hmm. because you're not going to save your way to prosperity. You've got to earn your way. So get yourself oh, a that good job. Oh, good, Joanne. Right. Wow. Save your life. Right. But you also have parties too, right? Uh, we have events for people. We have career counseling for mm -hmm. people. If you lose your job, we'll help you get a new one because if you qualify to be with us, we believe in you for the long term. Talk about a great employee benefit. See those billboards on the 101. <laughs> I shall. See how SoFi can help you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. We're here on Recode Decode talking to Daphne Kohler, who's the head of Coursera, an online education platform. There are many around like it to get online learning more into the mainstream, and they've been growing in size and number over the years. Daphne was just talking about how Coursera got started, and now we're talking a little bit about where platforms like this are going. So let's talk a little bit about what's next, because in the beginning, some of them, you know, people didn't know if they were doing as well, if people were actually completing courses, if they were learning enough. Let's talk about that, whether you've solved that problem. It's still the case that many people are not completing, but I think it's important to recognize that many people have no intent to complete. They're just browsing. They're exploring. 
what we're starting to see is that people who are serious about their learning, including those people who pay the modest amount of $50, $60, $70 to get the certificate for a course, completion rates there are north of 60, maybe 70%, as high as 90 in some courses. Mm -hmm. And why was that? Because they aren't committed because they aren't there, or what's the problem? A lot of people are just exploring in the same way that you pick up one of the books in the bookstore and you browse through it and you read a couple chapters and you feel like you got something, but you never Mm -hmm. intended to read it cover to cover. I see. And so where does that lead? Because the idea is this could replace, this could be the whole course. I know a lot of people are taking online courses, a lot of them more in the sort of real estate or things that you can do much, you know, that you have a list of things that you just have to learn. Where do you imagine it trending? What has to happen to become a bigger mainstream thing? I think it's already becoming a bigger mainstream thing because of where work is going. Mm -hmm. I think we're in a world today where the things that you learned in college 15 years ago are no longer the skills that you need for your next job. Many of those skills, like data science or digital marketing, didn't even exist 15 years ago. And and some of them were quite pointless. I mean, I don't think there's almost anything from college that I use today that I can think of, that I can think of. Fair enough. And there's things that you use today that you didn't learn when you went to college. Absolutely. And so as the world around us moves faster and faster, people constantly need to reskill. And they don't have the luxury of going back to school. They have families, jobs, and uh, other Mm -hmm. obligations. Mm -hmm. And so how do you learn? You learn online. So let's talk about that idea of learning, where learning is right now. So one of the important things is getting accreditation, that you get credit for what you're doing. Where is that right now? Because, again, that's another thing. You you should have to go to school, go to the classes, complete the tasks. For most of our learners, accreditation is not an issue. They're working adults. They've gotten whatever college education they plan to get. And now what they need is the learning and they need a certificate that uh, employers will respect. Mm -hmm. And more and more employers respect learning that they know has value and they don't really care whether it carries college credit. I see. So it's just to improve yourself so you can get better job, better skills and stuff like that. So let's talk a little bit about that idea of where learning is going then because you were talking about this lifelong learning and a lot of people talk about that is that you Mm -hmm. should be, there was a period where you go to school and that's it and then you stop pretty much except if you're in certain jobs like a doctor you have to Mm -hmm. go back and and learn more things as things change and you get primer courses and things like that. Where do you imagine learning happening? Because most people feel that most of it's wasted on 18 to 24 year olds. I think learning will have to happen throughout one's life. Millennials today um, are expected to change jobs something like every three years, maybe a total of 15 to 18 years throughout their life. Mm-hmm. Um, the job that they need next uh, is going to have a completely different skill set than the job that they previously had. And so you need to constantly learn. And in fact, one of the skills that we hear from employers that they're looking for is not just the basic skills. They're looking for someone who can learn new skills as they go along. And that's one of the reasons that they value the certificates that people get on Coursera Mm -hmm. because it's a mark of lifelong learners. So when you're in this space, when you're trying to get that idea that we should do lifelong learning, because I don't think we're there yet because I think most people feel you finish school and that's the end of it, essentially. Mm -hmm. How do you orient companies to wanting their employees to do this, like that this is a valuable thing? One of the things that we're seeing is that companies are actually very interested in this. And we have companies that have thousands or even tens of thousands of their employees on our site learning online. And so when you go to a company and you show them that data, they say, wow, there's clearly something of value there. And we're starting to have discussions with employers on how to use this as a really affordable, high-quality way to provide employee training. So you would go to employers and say, we're going to give your 
accounting people a primer on what's happening lately. For example, or teach people who are programmers how to become data scientists, for Mm -hmm. example. And we've started, for instance, to have a partnership, for instance, with Axis Bank in India, where they have a lot of people who need to be trained in 21st century job skills, and there's really no other way for them to go. So talk a little bit about who does this. You were saying you have a survey of of the people who use these things. Who are they? These are people often at large companies from all sectors of the economy who uh, need these skills to perform their jobs better in some cases, or in some cases they're looking for the next job that might not even be at that company, and they really want to get those skills that will open that door. Do you know that uh, LinkedIn... Uh, has published a list of all of the mm-hmm. credentials uh, providers on LinkedIn. Number one credential provider was Microsoft that's been providing this for 25 years. Number two was Coursera. Mm-hmm. Meaning Microsoft, oh, teaching, learning. Yeah, the Microsoft credentials for being certified on Microsoft sure. product was the number right. one credential on LinkedIn. Coursera was right. number two. And when people are getting these and employers are valuing them, Who's paying for them? Explain the payment system, how this works. Well, right now, mostly it's employees paying for themselves, mm-hmm. um, for the credential. But we're definitely starting Give an to... an example. S- say, they're taking a course on basic data science. Exactly. taking but d- Data science is actually a perfect example yeah. because it is our most popular category right now, mm-hmm. which is not surprising since there is 190,000 open jobs for mm-hmm. data scientists in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. And we have even, for instance, interestingly, on the NSA website, mm-hmm. they say they will accept the credential from the Johns Hopkins slash Coursera data science specialization as providing you as equivalent for one year of experience as a data scientist. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. Now, do you imagine people not having to go to colleges themselves like John Hop? You have a Johns Hopkins one. You deal with Stanford and many others. Do you imagine there's been attempts to make online universities that don't mm-hmm. affiliate with larger ones? So first of all, we don't see employers taking these credentials as a substitute for an undergraduate degree. I think it's still very much the case that a degree is an experience thing as mm-hmm. the entry point to most jobs. You can argue whether that should be the case or shouldn't, but it's what we're, going we're seeing. To but, um, but right now, uh, we do see employers using these credentials as sort of a distinguishing factor between people who you know, are run-of-the-mill applicants versus the ones that are really special. That are trying to do more with that their That are jobs. trying to do trying more, to do exactly. More. But do you imagine creating your own university? We or? certainly wouldn't be interested in creating our own university. Because there are. There's attempts at that. There are. Um, we partner with university. We are not a content company. We're a platform. And we work with the best universities and amazing instructors to take the best of the best content out there and make it available to people. You're a startup now, so you raise money. You went to VCs and other investors. Uh, How much money have you raised? Uh, we raised $22 million in our Series A, another 63 in our Series B, and another approximately 60 in our Series C recently. 60. Another 60. 60. That's yeah. a lot of money. It is. What do you do with all that money? Well, we first of all, we pay our engineers to mm-hmm. create an amazing platform, and we also pay other employees, like the ones that are working with universities on the pedagogy and on the content creation. And we also have to pay for things like Amazon hosting services yeah, and yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah. And where do you do you imagine this is a because a lot of people look at these things and think of them as a nonprofit. But how you look at it, this is a real business. I think the difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit sort of largely disappears when the nonprofit has to support itself using a sustained revenue stream. If you right. have backing from some large source of philanthropy, that's great. But unless you do that and you actually have to bring in a steady revenue stream, it doesn't really make much of a difference. So you're trying here to make a real business. Like We're trying to make a real business a real because business. we think that if we really want to grow and have the worldwide impact that we could have, we need to have a growth engine. Well, let's finish up on this section about where, speaking of worldwide growth, most 
of these universities are, these 140 universities are from where? All across the globe. They're all across the globe. Uh -huh. About half are in the United States and of the remainder, about half are in Europe and half are in other parts of the world. And in different languages. They are in different languages and our learners come from all over the world. Only about 30% of our learners are in the United States. Do most people want to take U.S. colleges like the famous ones? You know, uh, there's uh, certainly a, an interest in that, but a lot of people really like their local universities it, but because of cultural reasons, language reasons. So we mm -hmm. see interest in all universities. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about going global, what is occurring there? What, what's that business like? It's just people because they just have a connection and they can do it from anywhere, correct? That's right. And in fact, we have uh, really great mobile apps for both iOS and Android. So we have mm -hmm. a lot of people who are taking the courses on mobile. Yeah. And uh, you've taken courses, correct? Indeed. Yeah. What, how did you find? the experience? Uh, I think that a lot of the experience really depends on the quality of the course and the quality of the instructor. But I think the ability to lie there in my bed and take a course from one of the best So you can just go right to sleep. So can, <laughs> no, I, used to just, I used to sleep in class. Well, I'll be honest I, I don't know. Some of our courses are so amazing yeah, that right. I just lie there. And I would never have that opportunity because I'm yeah. a, you know, I have a job. I have two kids. I, yeah. There's too many things for me to go to actual It's amazing college. you want to learn at night. I just want to watch Game of Thrones or something <laughs> like that. But it's true. I would, the other day, I I was just thinking about taking a language course online, and I, I didn't at all think of taking it at a university. Well, you know, I for me, I'm, I was a Stanford professor, so mm -hmm. I'm new to business, and so okay. I take a bunch of business courses right. online so I can learn how to be what successful in my new... profit and loss thing? Exactly. What is, what is or, this revenue stream? Exactly. Yeah, oh, interesting. All right, when we get back, we're talking to Daphne Kohler, who is the... You're the CEO, correct? I'm the president. The president of, of Coursera, which is an online learning platform, and we're going to talk about where learning is going forward. We're going to talk about about VR and whether we need schools at all. This episode is brought to you by GoCD, the open source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. GoCD is the best integration and deployment tool you probably never heard of. It offers complete customization for your software's individual needs. There's no plugin or workaround needed. GoCD just goes. Spend more time delivering and less time configuring. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. Download GoCD for free at www.go.cd. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. This week, I have deigned to leave California to come visit Peter Kafka in his grimy studio in New York, where he does Recode Media. And I'm surprised that it's grimier than I thought it would be. We're not worthy here. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. That smell, that stale beer from a comedy club. Yeah, I don't know where the juice bar is, but it's not right here at There's all. There's no juice bar. There's no juice bar. New York. Yeah, and you'd have a hard time getting internet people here, just so you know. But you do get media people here. Yeah, and you have happy. an upcoming one with a great guy who is in media and technology at the same time. This is Brian Lamb. He's sort of the hero to tech bloggers everywhere because he used to be a tech blogger. He was yep. the guy who was at Gizmodo, running Gizmodo, and that was a very big deal to run Gizmodo. Mm -hmm. Took on Steve Jobs and won. I remember. And now he's created this great new business called The Wire Cutter, which is this really clever and simple basic idea. It's the kind of thing you and I should have done but didn't. Absolutely. Which is, what TV should I buy? Mm -hmm. He tells you. You go buy it. And he's, but they're very good. It's sort of like a kind of a souped up Consumer Reports in a it way. It's a, it's, a, it's a modern Consumer Reports. It's free. He picks one. That's what's great. He it's picks, like he doesn't he give says, you go ten. Go buy this thing. And then if you're an obsessive, and these guys are obsessive, they write thousands of words about why this is the best TV. But you don't care. You just hit the button. You buy a TV. You're done. Right. Exactly. Well, it's an exciting, interesting time in journalism. And this is sort of a new way at it. It feels, what I like about Brian is it feels 
you know, there's all these questions of whether journalists should be linking to buying and getting a piece of buying, but I think it's got a lot of integrity, the, the selections. Yeah, a lot of folks are interested in, in this business model Brian's created. So we talked about all that. We also talked about fighting Steve Jobs over the mm-hmm. stolen iPhone, oh, the which stolen Brian was like, oh, this, is, this is old stuff I don't want to talk about. Oh, it's, it's a great fantastic. story. You know, I went to that bar with David Goldberg, the late David Goldberg, and we, we enjoyed our uh, lovely beer one afternoon there. It is good to revisit it's history. It's good to revisit history. We're here on Recode Decode with Daphne Kohler, who is at Coursera, the online learning platform, one of the many that are available for people to take courses online. Daphne, we've been talking about how it works and what's popular and things like that, but let's talk about where education is going, because this is all about changing education, and, and that most people feel just like everything else. Everything's going digital. Education should change. How, well, where do you see that right now? Because a lot of people feel schools are not configured the right way. The way people learn isn't the right way, and the way the workplace is going is going to change dramatically. Many answers to that question, yeah. many parts I'll to the answer. I'll start with the first. Yeah. Um, I think the way in which we teach is, in many cases, very out of date. The whole concept of a lecture dates back to the days when textbooks were really rare, and the only way to convey the information to a student was to stand there and largely read from the textbook. Those days are long gone, and yet we're still teaching in the same way. Where I think education is going is a large part of the experience is going to be delivered digitally online, with most of the basic content and the basic skills development happening in a digital format where people can really study in their own way, at their own pace, with some personalization um, and adapting to the learner's needs. And then when they come into class, it's going to be for a much more interactive experience where they do joint problem solving, teamwork, debate, the kind of power skills that employers tell us are so lacking in many of the new employees that they currently try and hire. Right. So there's lectures, there's sitting in a row. You go right down to K through 12, the same thing, the way kids are learning. They're not. But now there's a lot of pushing at the lower grades, for sure, to create different kinds of schools where they mix grades, where people just make things, where they don't necessarily follow any curriculum. That's exactly right, but we see so little of that, and certainly in most colleges, you still walk into that same auditorium with 150 people and get lectured at for an hour and 15 minutes. Right, so how does that have to change? And online, how does that have to change? Because you're sort of offering a a digital version of that. Well, we're not actually offering a digital version of the lecture because um, our content is chunked into very short units and there's a lot of interactivity thrown in and a lot of ability to test yourself as you go along and say, wait a minute, I didn't get that. I want to go back and learn that in a different Mm -hmm. way. And I'm not saying that we have the perfect solution yet. There's a long ways to go in terms of making the content more interactive and more problem solving based, but we're definitely not the one hour and 15 minute lecture anymore. What do you imagine a school looks like in 30 years. I think in 30 years, people will come into class having done a lot of the basic skills acquisition, a lot of the practice, and they will come in and they'll work in small groups on projects, on problem solving, on debating, and the instructor will move from group to group and help them along. But a lot of the teaching and learning will be peer-to-peer. Do we need instructors? I think it's uh, instructors are valuable, first of all, in creating the content. I think that's really important. But I also think it's important to have someone there to answer the really challenging questions if mm-hmm. you really get stuck. And also people will tell you that one of the most inspirational experiences that they've had that have often shaped their life is someone who's been a really inspirational teacher. Right. Except that can that be replicated digitally? I mean, you worked on these issues at Stanford as a, as a professor, correct? The idea of artificial intelligence, people you know, learning and from computers, for example. 
I think some of that over time can be replicated digitally. So I think over time, I don't know when, you'll have more and more questions that a computer can answer by bots. But I think that inspirational, personal connection that you have, some of that can be with peers, some of that can be with an instructor. But Mm -hmm. I think people are social animals and they like to learn in groups Mm -hmm. and they like to learn from people. bots will do it for us. I, I really learned that. a lot from that bot that year. I, you I know, remember. I think you can learn something from a bot. I don't think you can be inspired by a bot. Well, not today, but you don't know. You I don't, don't know. know. So talk a little bit of where the learning environment is going. Here you are trying to get people online, but what else happens? Think like VR, for example. You worked in that area. Mm-hmm. How does that work in this environment? Do you imagine, should people feel like they're in the classroom? Or I was just talking to someone the other day. It was a kid, and he was like, well, why can't I put on a VR headset and be in colonial times. No, you see, that's where I think VR will play a role. I think VR, to have people pretend as if they're in the classroom, is rather retro. I mean, yeah. being in a classroom... So you can and- be bored... Exactly. So you can be bored in VR as opposed yeah. to being bored yeah. in person. Mm-hmm. But I think having someone undergo a virtual experience of diving the Great Barrier Reef or mm-hmm. being in colonial times or going into the, the, the pyramids in Egypt, those are experiences that most people will never have a chance to replicate, if any. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where VR can play a role is in creating these magical educational experiences that are immersive, not to immerse you in a classroom where, frankly, that's not really the best yeah. learning experience to begin with, but rather the immersion in another environment altogether. Are you working on any VR for your students? I think VR is going, is first of all, in a very early stage. And right now, it's really more about the, the content rather than the delivery sure. platform. Absolutely. So an instructor would have to say, I'm going to create an experience that allows you to um, traverse the Great Barrier Reef. So mm-hmm. it's really going to be on the instructor side. Yeah, I really do think that's the way a lot of learning is going to happen, is that we will be in these environments, exactly. which I think, which are highly immersive. And then you, you know, instead of reading about whatever, some sort of dinosaur era, you're standing there looking at things wouldn't that be amazing it will be amazing yeah. i'll be dead but that'll be amazing for i'm some. not sure if you'll be dead i don't, I don't think we're that far first away we from... have to yeah, you know it first has to go through the porn cycle and then it'll get to the to the learning cycle <laughs> well, we're gonna leave the porn cycle okay. to somebody else <laughs> yes oh they're already working on it trust me but when we're thinking about learning i want to finish up by talking about the idea of work and how work changes because as you were referencing before how we are educated directly affects how we work. And a lot of the population is not capable of what's going to happen next. I think a lot of people feel that. And many people in Silicon Valley are talking about you know, elimination of jobs through technology. If you have driverless cars, you eliminate all kinds of – or there was just a story in the New York Times about trucks that were autonomous. Like, that changes everything. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you have x-rays examined by computers, deep mm-hmm. learning, all kinds of things. You don't need radiologists. You don't need this. How do we need to be taught going forward? You know, here you are on the cutting edge of offering courses online, which seems like the first step. Where do you imagine it going? So first, every major revolution, the industrial revolution and so on, have eliminated large numbers of jobs. And every single time there's been this dire prediction that there's just not going to be enough jobs to go around. And what happened every single time is that new jobs were created to replace the old ones. But I think the jobs that are going to be created today are ones that require higher and higher levels of cognitive skills and mm-hmm. higher ability to shift quickly as and one job category. And to be entrepreneurial. And as one job category goes away, you want to switch quickly to the kind of skill set that you need for the next job. And so what I think we're going to CC is a much greater demand for ongoing education to learn those new skills that one needs. And I think we also need to be teaching people quite differently at earlier stages to have that kind of entrepreneurial, lifelong learning mindset, because otherwise it's very hard to develop that later on. The people who are learning here, are they a different set of people? 
you know, you have the elite colleges. They're elite students. There's no way around it. And they're often not as diverse as they should be, although they're mm -hmm. probably more diverse than most places. But what kind of person is doing this? Do you get a more diverse group of people? Well, we definitely get a more diverse group in that, for instance, only 30% of our learners are in the United States, and many of them come from lower socioeconomic status and from ba backgrounds that will never give them the opportunity to attend a, a top university. Mm -hmm. I will say, however, that we don't see as much diversity in terms of personal enablement as mm -hmm. we would like to have. That What's is, that our audience are people who are by and large self-motivated, self-driven achievers. Mm -hmm. And what we really need to do is to create a learning experience that can For also draw in the ones that are less yeah. intrinsically motivated mm -hmm. and how do you create something that really makes it attractive and, and able for them to succeed. So how do you do that? Well, that's one of the things that we're trying to do. And it turns out that some tricks are evergreen. It turns out the deadlines really make a difference. Oh, if you really? have it, Oh, yeah. We had a version of the platform that was entirely self-paced. And it turned out most people said, yeah. oh, I'll do it tomorrow, uh, and tomorrow, tomorrow yeah, never yeah, comes. Yeah, yeah. So like, deadlines really make a difference. Right. I think there's other things that we could do in terms of, for instance, creating a more um, gamified experience where mm -hmm. it's like kind of like, why do you play computer games for so long? It's because you know, you feel like you can do better and it's a little bit hard, but but not so hard that it's impossible. Mm -hmm. How do you create that in a learning environment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I think you have to create incentives. That is, the more value these credentials have right. in the marketplace, the more incentive there will be for people to complete so they can benefit. Now, right now, the courses cost what? Right now, the access to the course content, the, the videos and such, is free. But if you want the credential, typically around between $50 and $80, $90 per course. Yeah, you really cheap. It's cheap, absolutely. I'm just thinking colleges cost <laughs> thousands, tens of thousands. Thousands? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. Well, per course, it's, per course. it's thousands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does that have to change? Because like, the cost of college now is, I mean, I have two kids that will be going to college soon. And I'm me too. Saving up, like, kind of thing to get them to go there. And I don't, part of me is like, why am I wasting this much money on this? You know, for this experience, is there a better way to do this? Well, I think it's definitely the case that there is a better way, more cost-effective way to teach by uh, combining the best of what online scalable education has to offer while still keeping enough human interaction in the mix to make it motivating and inspiring for people. And I think colleges will have to change to align with that. And in 20 years, will there be more colleges or less? I think in 20 years, I don't know if there will be more or less, but they will definitely be different. That is, they will be offering a very different learning experience. And I think those colleges that don't have a clearly defined value proposition um, in that they think their primary role is to deliver content, those colleges will go away. Absolutely. So becoming an entrepreneur and leaving academia, most people don't like to leave academia. That's true. I, I always ask this, what caused you to do this? Because we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening. And last question, what caused you to create this versus just staying there and being professor I love forever. being a professor I love teaching I loved advising but when I thought of the impact that I could have on maybe hundreds of very privileged Stanford students versus tens of millions of people worldwide that will never have an opportunity for a better life the impact differential was so huge that I just couldn't say no is there one thing you wish you had done differently I think I underestimated the complexity of starting a business. Mm -hmm. I walked into this with, I'm just going to do this. It would have been really helpful, I think, to bring in a strong team of people who complement the skills that I brought and built that team up earlier. I think that was something that I would have done differently. Excellent. Well, Daphne, thank you so much for coming. Daphne Kohler is the head of Coursera the online learning platform, part of a trend that is going to continue well into the future. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Kira. 
If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with former Texas State Senator Wendy Davis, AOL co-founder Steve Case, and TV star Kim Kardashian, just to name a few. You can find all those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try some of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like The Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.